black dress and red lipstick With my high heels and hair done up You wanna sweep me off my feet A first date turns to a first kiss But I still keep my secrets There's a whole lot more to me than what you see Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. I love that sound. You're listening to a slice of Love My Mess by homegrown musicians Steel Ivory. I like that name. There are featured Ohio musical artists this week. And if you stick around to the end of the podcast, you'll hear the whole song and tell you a little bit more about these talented sisters. Sisters, that's cool. Yes, they are extremely talented. But right now, come on, when you know the routine, let's throw another log on the fire and settle in for a brand new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me as always is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years reporting for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hey, everybody. This is our 24th episode, Paula. Are you running out of mysteries yet? Not even close. As a matter of fact, Ohio is flush with so many mysteries, We're going to squeeze three in this very single episode. Three? (laughs) All related? Uh, You know, related for sure in one way. They all took place in a half-mile tract of land in Portage County, which, for 12 months in the early 1990s, gave a good imitation of being a vortex of evil. Vortex of evil. There's another great band name. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it would be. Yeah, this this place was, was bad. It, it, it was in the southeastern part of the county. It's a township called Deerfield, and it marks the western edge of a huge water attraction known to outdoor lovers all over as the Berlin Reservoir. Ever been there? Yes, I have. I camped there. Oh, well, I, I'm telling you, this place is a big deal. It's a huge, meandering 3,300-acre body of water surrounded by woods that spill into two other counties. Hunters love it, boaters love it, campers love it, and apparently it is, or at least was, a favorite of killers. Killers, all right. That was especially true for a horrible one-year period that stretched between 1993 and 1994 when a tiny portion of the reservoir was connected to at least two Possibly three, maybe even four different murderers. You know, that's crazy. I, I mentioned that I camped there, and that's probably about the time I was camping with my friends. And Oh, my gosh. Oh, I'll tell you, if I'd been in that area at that time, I would not have been in that area yeah. at that time. Thanks for warning me. Yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like we got a lot of ground to cover, so where do we start? Well, this story begins in November of 1993. It's late at night. Sometime as the hour crosses midnight from Friday into Saturday on November 6th, and a young couple has made their way to a deserted beach at Berlin Lake. 31-year-old Andy Hussey drives he and his companion, 32-year-old Lisa Waters, along Fewtown Road. They park on a dirt road and make their way down to the water's edge. This part of Berlin Lake is one of the long fingers of water that stretch to the western edge of the reservoir. They settle onto a fallen log that is right next to an old campfire ringed with rocks. 
They share some beers and they chat. Who knows about what? Maybe Lisa wanted to talk about her failed relationship with her boyfriend and her recent move from Kent to Akron. Or maybe Andy was sharing stories about spending his childhood in the area. Well, several feet in front of them, the lake laps gently at the shoreline. Several feet behind them is a 40-foot cliff, deep, dark woods, and a sniper. The sniper is carrying a 30-30 caliber rifle. He looks through a high-powered scope, takes aim, and fires. The first bullet enters Andy Hussey's back and pierces his heart. He falls off the log dead. He never saw it coming. Lisa, however, has time for a moment of sheer terror. She leaps from the log and attempts to run, but the sniper is a marksman. He quickly loads another round and takes aim in the dark at his moving target more than 60 feet away. He fires again. The bullet enters the back of her neck and rips through her lung. She falls dead 15 feet from where she'd been sitting. A few hours later, the sun rises, and about 9 a.m. that morning, a couple of deer hunters come across the grisly scene. They call police. Investigators arrive. The coroner does his work, and they piece together the scenario I've just described. They recover shotgun shells from the cliff where the sniper had stood. Now, while two gunshots rang out the night before, police aren't surprised they weren't reported. The hunting season for rabbits and pheasants opened the day before. But authorities are absolutely certain no one mistook Waters and Hussey for small game. This was cold-blooded murder. Now, I can't tell you a lot about Andy Hussey. We know he was the son of Portage County Sheriff Lieutenant Gordon Hussey. And we know he would have been very familiar with the Berlin Reservoir area. His family owned property there and he'd grown up in its environs. He fished there often, played there often. It was obviously a place he felt comfortable being in. But his family never spoke to the media. And from what I could tell, I could find no obituary. We know much more about Lisa Waters. And it's a sad story. Her tragic end came after a very troubled life. Her father, Jerry Waters, told a reporter that as a youngster, Lisa displayed musical talent. She loved singing gospel songs with her parents and younger brother, and he cherished memories of her carefree youth. He chuckled about the time as a little girl when she proudly carried the box holding her dad's birthday cake up to him so he could open it, only to reveal she had been carrying it upside down. But when she was 16 years old, her behavior changed. Her parents took her to a therapist. She was diagnosed with a chemical imbalance and put on medication, medication she didn't always take. Now, Jerry Waters said his daughter had a trusting nature, and it made it easy for men to take advantage of her. By the time she'd turned 32, she had three children, and she was unable to care for any of them. Her dad and stepmother were looking after two-year-old Ashley and six-month-old Rachel, while three-year-old son Mitchell lived in Alabama with Lisa's mom. Lisa was unemployed. Sometimes she ate her meals at the Haven of Rest Missionary in downtown Akron. And most recently, she'd been living in a room on the third floor of a house on Beck Avenue in Akron. She moved there a few months before her death after breaking up with a man she'd been living with in Kent for the past three years, a man who was the father of one of her children. She was trying to get her life in order. She was working on getting her high school equivalency degree. 
Her dream was to become a nurse and get settled enough so that she could support her three children. But shadows of the past followed her. The man she had recently broken up with had been charged with raping her and with criminal trespassing. She got a temporary protection order against him, but in the end, he was only found guilty of child endangering. I'm sure the investigators looked at him closely, but they didn't publicly say much about that. They did say they were very focused on finding someone who displayed the skills of this particular killer. The long-range rifle that was used was outlawed for hunting in Ohio. Gun experts said it would take three years using that kind of weapon to get good enough to fire it in the dark at that distance from a steep angle on that cliff and with such deadly accuracy. So this was a professional sniper rifle. Um, Well, they said whoever had that kind of proficiency would have had to use that gun a lot. And it was unlikely that somebody in Ohio could gain that kind of proficiency because they would have had to hide that weapon all the time. So they were wondering, well, did this mean the perpetrator lived in a state where the thirty thirty caliber was legal, like neighboring West Virginia? Oh, okay. But Portage County Sheriff Dwayne Cayley said he thought it likely that the killer knew the victims, or at least one of them. He said he had a suspect in mind, someone who also met the criteria of being a really good marksman. But authorities never got enough evidence to file a charge, and to this day, the murders of Lisa Waters and Andy Hesse remain unsolved. I wonder if they're thinking maybe military. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. That's hmm. could have had a military background. Right. Well, let's move ahead. We are not done by a long shot. We're going to move ahead to August 25, 1994, and it's nine months since Waters and Hussey were murdered. At 7.30 a.m., an oil and gas company inspector is driving down Fewtown Road on his way to make a routine check on a well. He leaves his vehicle and spots a body in the woods, just a few hundred feet from the previous November's homicide scene. It's the nude and tortured remains of a girl. Now, detectives quickly don't see any similarities between this and the previous case, The coroner will find she died of strangulation, but she had also been beaten with fists, stabbed with a screwdriver, and cut with a knife. Beaten with fists. Jeez. They're sure she had been killed elsewhere and dumped there probably about 24 hours before the gas inspector found her. How horrifying. Now, the day the body is discovered, forensic specialists are on the site. They're looking for evidence. And back at the sheriff's office, deputies, they're calling all the area police departments, asking about, asking about cases of missing girls. And very quickly, they get a hit in Alliance. This is a city just across the Portage County line in Stark County. And Alliance police, they go to the home of Janet Menendez, She had reported her daughter missing four days earlier. And they tell her they've just found a body in Portage County and they want to know if she can come take a look. Mind you, this is happening so quickly. Everyone is still at the scene of the Berlin Reservoir. It's just afternoon when deputies walk Janet past a line of reporters that have gathered and into the woods and out of sight. And a few seconds later, the reporters hear Janet's screams filling the air. The victim is indeed 17-year-old Catherine Menendez. Now, Catherine was last seen by her family that Saturday night. The family was headed to see a movie at Mount Union Theater, 
But Kathy declined. She said she was going to go spend the night at a friend's house in Deerfield. But the next day, Kathy failed to return home. It wasn't the first time this had happened. Catherine was a habitual runaway. There was more than one missing persons report in her file at the police department, though her mom preferred to call it AWOL, AWOL, absence without official leave. But this time, her mom said it felt different, and that's why she called police. After her daughter's body was discovered, Janet Menendez formed her own opinions as to what might have happened. She pointed investigators in the direction of three men who were slightly older than Kathy, and all three refused polygraph tests. One of the men she described as a wannabe suitor with an allegedly violent history. Authorities, however, have no evidence with which to arrest anyone. And they keep reiterating to the public there is no connection between a killer who would torture a teenager and the sniper who coldly shot a couple in the back. Yeah, usually that's a that's different MO right there. Absolutely. The only thing they have in common is Fewtown Road and this tiny corner of the Berlin Reservoir. The next body, however, had police wondering if in addition to the sniper, there was a serial killer using Berlin for his dumping ground. So we're going to go to November of 1994. This is one year after Waters and Hussey were killed. In just a few months. Three months after Catherine Menendez was found. Hunters found the decomposed remains of yet another body. This one, also off Hewtown Road, in the woods, less than half a mile from where Menendez was found, and a mere 200 yards from where Waters and Hussey were killed. Now at first, a pathologist will determine she was a white female, strawberry blonde hair, small to medium build, and 14 to 18 years old. Later that month, the pathologist would revise his report to say it likely she was 17 to 22 years old. And that's a mistake that is going to cost investigators some very important time. Meanwhile, a facial reconstruction artist gets busy. He's trying to sketch what the victim would have looked like. The photo is uploaded to a national database of missing persons. But authorities can find no missing person reports that match the description they have in hand, which includes that age of 17 to 22 years old. Now, in 1998, so this is four years after the discovery of those remains, a Portage County detective sees a flyer about a girl that's missing from Rochester Township in Pennsylvania. That's a Pittsburgh suburb. Her name is Sarah Ray Bohm, and she's 14 years old. Well, he calls the Rochester police, but the chief there dismisses it. This Portage County description says the victim could be as old as 22 years. His missing youngster is just 14. Besides, the Rochester chief says, others have said they've seen this girl about. She's probably just a runaway. Some folks in Pennsylvania, though, aren't so sure about those sightings. And in 2001, after not being able to confirm a single sighting, Detective Kim Clements of the Beaver County District Attorney's Office finds a sketch on a website called the Doe Network. That's a database of missing persons. The sketch looks a lot like her missing Sarah Ray Bone. The sketch, as it turns out, 
is the one of the remains found in Portage County, Ohio. Uh-huh. Wow. So Detective Clements requests a DNA comparison, and they take a sample from the remains that are in a cooler in a Cuyahoga County coroner's office, and they take a swab from Sarah's mother. But this case, which has already been cursed with so many delays, is cursed again. You see, under normal circumstances, it would take just a few weeks to analyze that DNA. But now we're in the fall of 2001, and the terrorist attack of September 11 has created a backlog at the FBI where scientists are trying to determine the remains of thousands of victims in New York, Pennsylvania, and Washington, D.C. This happened uh, nationwide. They were even, it even disrupted uh, the case of Tupac and Biggie where, you know, they kind of was blamed for not being able to solve those because of 9-11. It took time, yeah. There are a limited number of people who know how to analyze this information, and that's what they'd run into. So it would take two more years for them to get around the case of Sarah Ray Bone. And in 2003, nine years after those remains were discovered, they did indeed confirm the 14-year-old was the victim found at Berlin Reservoir, 70 miles away from her family's home in that Pittsburgh suburb. So here's what we know about Sarah. She loved animals, she had a great singing voice, and she was a cheerleader who would have entered the ninth grade that fall. Her parents were estranged, and she lived with her mother and brother. On July 14, 1994, she left a note saying she was going to spend the night at a friend who lived two blocks away. She made it to the friend's house, but they had company, so she didn't stay. But neither did she return home. When her mother, Phyllis Bohm, learned the next day that her daughter hadn't stayed at the friend's house, she called police. She hadn't run away before, but police had a reason for labeling her a runaway. That's because a few days after she disappeared, Sarah's family found a note tucked under her pillow. Now, this letter wasn't released to the public until 2011, seven years after her death. Probably just trying to keep it for, you know, evidence. Yeah, yeah. And in it, she wrote, I've always said the day I walk out the door is the day I never return. I'm just a burden. I create problems. I've already learned you don't have time for me and you don't care. Now, in the letter, she referred to a disturbing relationship. She wrote, I met a guy who gave me love and whatever else I was not getting at home. He was a very, very abusive man. Didn't anyone wonder why I was always injured and said I fell? And then she also wrote, I don't mind if you don't love me. Please don't hate me. Please don't try to find me because you won't find me. By the time you read this note, I'll be gone. Uh, how heartbreaking. It, it really is. And then, the, uh, and then the letter ends. This is all for the best. Wish me luck and say a prayer for me, okay? I'm sorry. Sarah Ray Baum. <sighs> Now, the weird thing is nobody knows who she was addressing in the letter. Since she refers to her mother and brother in the note, it didn't appear she left it for them. How strange, then, that it was left in the house she shared with them. The letter was found by an uncle who had walked into her bedroom, kneeled at her bed, pulled a pillow toward him, and found an envelope addressed to whoever cares. Investigators said they didn't think the family was being completely candid with them. They said they didn't doubt the words were in her handwriting, 
but they found the letter suspicious because it was written using four different inks. They wondered if it was somehow pieced together and planted, either to help police or throw them off track. The Beaver County District Attorney, Anthony Barish, was among skeptics, and he said, quote, In a strange way, Sarah is speaking to us, and I really believe the message she's giving is, that's not my letter, that's not a letter from me. And that's not all. In 1993, 10 months before her disappearance, Sarah claimed she was the victim of an attempted abduction. She gave an interview to a TV station in which she said, I was just thinking, oh, please, God, just don't let him kill me. Just a thought I had in my head that I was going to be killed. Anyway, we're going on 26 years and no one has been arrested in any of the Berlin Reservoir cases. Authorities say it seems very possible the two girls are the victims of a serial killer, and yet they have different suspect lists for both of them, and they are not the same suspects. Hmm. It's just as possible they're not connected at all. Just same area. Exactly. That one vortex of evil. The cases may be old, but they're not forgotten. In 2009, the FBI put up billboards featuring the Menendez and Bohm cases along highways in Pennsylvania and Ohio. So was this billboard with both girls on it? Or? Yes, okay. yes. If you go to our website, I'll post a picture of the billboard and okay. you can see what they look like. And in 2015, the Portage County Sheriff's cold case team pulled the file out and put fresh eyes on it. They resubmitted the old evidence to the FBI, and the FBI even returned to the reservoir to reprocess the scene. They said... Since the woods where the girls were found gets little foot traffic, it was possible that the evidence remained there. But if they found anything of interest, they haven't shared it, and it hasn't led to any arrests. Now, there is one more indirect but very creepy connection to this part of the Berlin Reservoir. When Sarah Bohm's remains were found in 1994, a Stark County newspaper quoted a man named Danny Jenkins a 51-year-old hunter who said he was one of those hunters who had discovered her body. Three years later, that same Danny Jenkins would go on a hunting trip with his buddies, Dwayne and William Lockhart, in Harrison County down by Tappan Lake. And he would shoot them point blank with a 12-gauge shotgun and rob them of $5,000. Whoa. Yeah. Jenkins is currently serving a life sentence for those murders. Absolutely. And no one has connected him to any of the Berlin killings, including uh, Waters and Hussey. And Portage County authorities say he lied when he claimed to have been one of the hunters who reported Bohm's body uh, being discovered. But still, it's a very eerie tie to that area that, like I said, I'm calling the vortex of evil. It's hard to know how many different cases we're talking about here. Like you said, there could be three different killers picking the same area by coincidence. With a tie to a fourth killer, if Jenkins really was out there the day Sarah Ray Bohm's body was found, my head is swimming. So let's see what our armchair detective has to say. Well, tonight we would like to welcome this episode's armchair detective, Brian Bassesi. Hi, Brian. Hi, Paula. Hi, Steve. How are you? Wonderful. So happy to have you. Hey, Brian is formerly of West Akron. He moved to Asheville, North Carolina about four years ago. Um, But his heart is still here, isn't it? 
<laughs> it is. Uh, Brian is the co-host for a podcast called The Horror Movie Club with his buddy Ashvin, formerly of Hudson, and the two of them get together uh, every week and chat about a new horror movie or an old horror movie. And uh, you can get their episodes and look over their episode list at horrormovieclub.com. And Brian, I thought of you when I was doing this episode just because I thought, this episode sounds like a horror movie. There is so much going on. Am I wrong? Yeah, it really does, especially since you deemed it the Vortex of Evil. That would be a good title. Did you like that? Vortex of Evil. Steve thought <laughs> it would be a good band name. Yeah, but yeah I, or a good I, band name. I, think it'd be a I good Googled one. it just to check, and there is a book on Amazon called Vortex of Evil. Oh, no. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I hope they don't sue me for copyright infringement. <laughs> but. <laughs> well, Brian, let's just get cut to the chase. I am interested to know what you think about the four deaths that occurred at, at the Berlin Reservoir in that tiny area. What's connected? What's not connected? What are your thoughts on that? It's really strange that it all happened so closely, like not only in the Berlin Reservoir area, but in that same half mile, as you said. My thinking was kind of that the first instance with Lisa and Andy might be its own thing. It sounds like Lisa had just gotten out of a bad relationship. She had had a history with the men who didn't sound like the best people. And I have a feeling that that might have been him maybe paying somebody or somebody that he knew killing her and Andy out of jealousy. Just because that case, you know, it involved a man and a woman, and they were a little bit older. I think they were in their 30s. Is that right? That's right. And then that that doesn't sound connected to the other two, which were young teenage girls. And just the style, too, that that's so strange to me, being sniped in the woods. I've done a lot of camping in my day, and that the woods have never frightened me, but now I'm a little afraid. You, you only have to hear one of these cases, and it kind of changes your whole mind about how you view something like that. Yeah, for sure. So the and then those girls. were the only two that seemed to actually happen in the reservoir because the other two, we don't know where the girls were killed. We just know that their bodies were dropped there. That's right. That's a good point. So the question is, was a serial killer uh, using Berlin as his dumping ground? I mean, do you think those two girls, even though the cops said they had different suspect, suspect lists for each, do you think it likely that they were connected? It does seem likely to me. It's it's just so strange that they would be dumped so closely together at such a such a close time frame too. I was researching this a little bit and it looked like Sarah the remains that they found were pretty decomposed. I saw them called skeletal. Right. And she was found in November and Catherine was found in August, so I'm wondering how long was Catherine there? Could it have been even closer to August? They were found three months apart, but it could have they could have been dropped even closer. Well, I think so that's just strange to me. Yeah, I think they determined Sarah was likely killed in July. She wasn't found till November. I thought it possible that someone killed Catherine, and then another killer heard about her body being found and then dumped Sarah's remains there to make it look like, you know, kind of take the heat off him. 
But then I saw that Sarah had actually been killed earlier. So there's no way whoever dumped Catherine would have known that Sarah's remains were there unless it was the same person. That's a great point. If she was dumped before that, then, yeah, it would have been a really extreme coincidence if it was two different people because they wouldn't have even known that a body had been recently dumped there. And then what about this guy who says, uh, yeah, I found Sarah's body. And then a couple of years later, he turns out to be a killer. <laughs> that was really weird. It just made me wonder what kind of people were hanging out in this vortex of evil. Do you, do you think it, terrible things. given that he shot two people and that he was a hunter, do you think there's a chance he was responsible for Lisa and Andy's deaths? For some reason, that one didn't sound connected to me just because, I don't know, something about that shotgun point blank and stealing $5,000 off of his two hunting companions. It just sounded a little bit different than the sniper who, you know, very... Uh, kind of stealthily just two shots killed Andy and Lisa and then was off the scene. It just felt a little more sloppy to me. Yeah, definitely a different M.O. I mean, Lisa and Andy weren't robbed, so it sounded like there was a different motivation, you know, in the other deaths. And then I kind of wondered what what those guys were up to because I've never been hunting before, but I don't think I would bring $5,000 of cash with me. So it seemed like maybe there was something more going on there, too. Right. Yeah, there definitely could be. Hey, had, have you ever been to the Berlin Reservoir? I have not, no. Have you ever done any camping? I've done, so actually, I've done camping, not in Ohio. My wife and I actually hiked the uh, Appalachian Trail from Georgia to Maine a few years ago. So oh, that's I'm no stranger to camping and living in the woods. <laughs> I, you know, since you do horror movie club reviews and you know about these kinds of cases, I'm just surprised you could ever camp again. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, actually, whenever we do scary movies that involve the woods, they always scare Ashman. But I'm like, oh, I'm not afraid of the woods. It doesn't bother me. But now it, my perspective might be changed a bit. It's like knowing that the killers are always in the basement, but you still go down into yeah. the basement. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, one of the most haunting things for me about this one was when you described uh, Catherine Menendez. She went to investigate and see if that was her daughter, and just the reporters kind of on the edge of the woods hearing her scream. That's just terrifying to me, really sad. I was amazed how fast that all happened. I, you know, I was piecing it together in my head, and I'm like, they were right there. That body had just been discovered you know, maybe four hours earlier, and already they've identified a potential victim, gotten her mother, you know, from her home to this place. It's all happening so fast. And those reporters yeah. being the ones to report, you know, they just heard her wailing. It's so heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. It's really sad. You know, the other thing that was strange about this case was, at least in the case of Sarah, were the missteps that just delayed identifying her by so many years. And, you know, they say, you know, every day, every week, every month is a real strain on the investigation. The longer you wait to to solve a case, the harder it gets. And, you know, some of the problems that happened in Sarah's case that took years to identify her just really put investigators behind the eight ball on this one. 
Yeah, it really did. One thing that was a little strange, too, about Sarah's case was it sounded like the cops were a little suspicious of the family or the uncle who found the note. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't too sure about that. They they made a point of saying that the note was written in different ink, but that kind of sounded like something that a teenage girl might do just just because or just because she thought it would look cool. I didn't know how much stock to put in that. Yeah, I agree. And the way they said they didn't know if it was, they said that it was definitely in her handwriting, but they thought somebody else had planted it. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, regardless of where she wrote it, I mean, if it's still in her handwriting, it's still her message. I was really unclear how they thought. I don't think they clarified why they thought that that was staged somehow. Because if it's in her handwriting, it's in her handwriting. Yeah, I didn't follow that either. And then one other thing that struck me, this is back about the uh, Andy and Lisa case, was, and you know more about these types of things than I do, but I was kind of surprised that the sniper left the used shotgun shells there. I would have thought he would have collected them before leaving the scene. And then I thought, would there be fingerprints on the shells? But maybe he was more careful than that about the fingerprints. Um, that actually occurred to me, too. And then I wondered, well, I wonder if it was so dark. I don't know enough about guns. I mean, would the shells fall, like, right at his feet? Or is there a chance that it was too dark and the shells would have fallen or, or scattered somewhere else where maybe he wouldn't have been able to find them? I, I don't know how that works. That's true. I keep forgetting that it's dark. And I do think they get shot back a little bit instead of falling directly at the feet. So, yeah, maybe he wouldn't have been able to find them. Do you agree this guy had to be a marksman? I mean, in the dark, at that distance, one shot each. Yeah, and it sounded like the police knew who he was. They said that there was a suspect connected to Lisa who had a background that could have made him that good of a shot. So for me, it kind of seemed like that was a done deal, but it sounded like they just didn't have enough evidence. It's so frustrating, you know, when you when you think the police know who did it and they just can't get the evidence Exactly. To bring it yeah. together. Yeah. Well, but yeah, if you can't get the hard evidence, then you can't just say, well, it was a marksman, and here's a marksman that she knows, so it was him. No. But it's kind of too big of a coincidence almost to make me think that it wasn't him. But we have seen too many people put in jail for police jumping exactly. the gun on things, so you can't, you do have to have the evidence too. That's right. Yeah. Now, the question is, is, would you watch this movie starring Nicolas Cage, as in Berlin? <laughs> I really would. Okay. <laughs> Berlin Lake, starring Nicolas Cage. Maybe i try to write that movie. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like I, I think the only, the only thing I would add is that uh, if any of your listeners do want to check us out, we, one thing we do is try to tie every movie to Ohio or to Northeast Ohio in some way. It usually gets pretty roundabout and messy, but it's kind of fun. I love that about it. I love that. And you guys are, <laughs> you guys are so much fun. I, I just love the, the casual discussion you have. Just a couple of buddies chatting about a, a movie they just right, saw. Yeah. It's definitely see it. We have fun with it. So yeah, just, we love your show, too. I'm honored to be a guest. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And that's it for tonight, listeners. You can find photos, newspaper clippings, and more at our website at ohiomysteries.com. If you like our podcast, please hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. 
that little button will make sure that future episodes will be saved for you in your podcast library so you don't miss a beat. That brings us to tonight's featured musical artist. If you're a regular listener, you already know we like to use this platform to spread the word about Ohio's amazing homegrown talent. And we've done that. We've got some pretty good talent. I'm, I'm, I love I'm discovering these, yeah, I'm proud these, of these musicians. musicians. Tonight, let me tell you about pop country artists Steel Ivory, the sister singer-songwriters Kaylee Demlow and Kristen Denton. The pair grew up in Reynoldsburg, Ohio, and a couple of years ago, they moved to Nashville, Tennessee to try to pursue their musical careers full-time. Good for them. You can follow them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. Look for their YouTube channel, or just go straight to their website, www.steelivory.com. And if you're traveling in the Nashville area, by all means, check out their website to see if they've got some performances scheduled. They recently made their debut at the legendary Bluebird Cafe in Nashville. They are also busy working on a new album, so stay tuned. You can find links to Steel Ivory and all of our featured musical artists on our website, ohiomysteries.com. For now, turn up the volume, enjoy, love my mess, and we'll see you here next week for another Ohio Mystery.
Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.